You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. Remember back in 2016 when Senator Marco Rubio and former President Donald Trump were sparring over the size of Trump's hands during the Republican primary? He's always calling me Little Marco. And I'll admit, the guy, he's taller than me, he's like 6'2", which is why I don't understand why his hands are the size of someone who's 5'2". Have you seen his hands? They're like this. And you know what they say about men with small hands? I've never heard of this one. Look at those hands. Are they small hands? <laughs> and he referred to my hands. If they're small, something else must be small. I guarantee you there's no problem. I guarantee you. It may have been one of the low points of that primary, and a California attorney wants to trademark the phrase Trump too small as a slogan for T-shirts and hats. The trademark office rejected Steve Elser's trademark application. But then the Federal Circuit Court of Appeals found that the phrase was entitled to trademark under First Amendment protections for political commentary. Now Elser will get to argue his case to the Supreme Court. The justices have agreed to take up this trademark dispute in the term starting in October. What's a little unusual is that in this case, the Biden administration is sort of on Trump's side, defending the patent office's decision to reject the trademark application. Joining me is First Amendment law expert Eugene Volick, a professor at UCLA Law School. This case goes back to 2018 and it has been through several layers of decisions. So first, the trademark office rejected the application. Why? Well, the federal trademark statute has a limitation in its registration provisions, and it says that you can't register a mark that consists of or comprises a name, portrait, or signature identifying a particular living individual except by his written consent. Now, you could still use a trademark with somebody else's name. Let's say, for example, you write an unauthorized biography of someone. You can use that person's name in the name of the biography and in promotion for the biography. You can do that. Likewise, you can actually even use it as a trademark, just not as a registered one. But if you want the benefits of a registered mark, that is unavailable by law 
in a situation where the mark consists of or comprises another person's name, again, unless you have their written consent. So this is a particular kind of benefit program that the government operates. It's not really a speech restriction as such. Nobody's being barred from, as I said, using people's names this way. But it provides this valuable benefit of trademark registration to most trademarks, but not to ones that fall within this exception. And the question is whether that's unconstitutional whether once the government sets up this kind of trademark registration program, whether it can then exclude certain kinds of marks from this benefit, or whether it has to provide it even-handedly, regardless of the content of the mark. So then was the Federal Circuit's decision finding that the phrase was entitled to trademark, was that a surprise then? Well, I think people who have been following this area were aware that there's uncertainty here. I don't think people would have been surprised by a decision either way. And I think it's also hard to predict which way the Supreme Court will go on this. So the Supreme Court has made clear that viewpoint-based exclusions of trademarks from trademark registration, like other viewpoint-based exclusions from benefit programs that promote private speech, are unconstitutional. So in Metal v. Tam, the court held that an exclusion for derogatory marks, including ones that are seen as derogatory of a racial or an ethnic group, that that's unconstitutional. That involved the Asian-American dance band The Slants, who wanted to register that mark, and the statute was interpreted by the Patent Trademark Office as prohibiting that because some people perceived that as a racial slur. In fact, the band was trying to kind of reclaim that precisely because it had historically been a racial slur. The Supreme Court said, well, it's unconstitutional to treat allegedly racist marks differently from other marks because that's viewpoint-based. In a later case, Yanku v. Brunetti, the court likewise struck down a ban on registering scandalous or immoral trademarks. In that case, it was a mark that consisted of the letters F-U-C-T's. The PTO concluded that was scandalous or immoral because of its vulgar nature. And the Supreme Court said, well, no, excluding scandalous or immoral marks, that's viewpoint-based. But the court didn't resolve what happens if Congress comes back and says, well, we're not excluding scandalous or immoral marks, just particular kinds of vulgarities, have a list of vulgar words that are vulgar, not because of the viewpoint they express, but because they're connected to, say, sex or excretion or some such. The court did not resolve that question. And in a sense, that question is arising in this very case. What happens if there's an exclusion that's content-based, whether it's for vulgarity or for a person's name, but is viewpoint neutral? And will you explain why the Federal Circuit came to the conclusion that the phrase was entitled to trademark protection? Well, the Federal Circuit said, look, we read these two cases, Yanko Vibernetti and Mattel Vitam, and we think that they support a rule that, generally speaking, the trademark registration system has to be content neutral, not just viewpoint neutral, but content neutral. Because even though it's basically a benefit program for speech, it's also a form of regulation of speech because it excludes certain trademarks from this important benefit, which would end up deterring people from using those marks if they know they're not registrable. So the Federal Circuit concluded that the right way of reading the Supreme Court precedents is, is generally speaking, at least presumptively forbidding content discrimination in the trademark registration system. But there's, I think, another way of reading them, and that's what the federal government is saying that they should be read this way, that actually... Content discrimination is okay here, again, because this is a restriction on access to a benefit program rather than an outright prohibition on speech, 
Content discrimination is, okay, it's just viewpoint discrimination that is unconstitutional. Here's an analogy that might support the government. In the tax code, there's, of course, the charitable tax exemption, which is available to a wide range of groups that speak, educational institutions, but also groups that try to educate the public about particular ideological perspectives. But the tax exemption is not available to groups that electioneer, that urge uh, the election or defeat of a particular candidate. And the Supreme Court has said, well, that's constitutionally permissible because this tax exemption is a benefit program. It gives you kind of like a little subsidy, essentially a matching grant subsidy from the government that's economically equivalent to a tax exemption. And when the government is providing this sort of benefit program, it can impose content-based restrictions so long as they're viewpoint neutral. The government can't say we'll deny tax exemption to supposedly racist groups or anti-police groups or anti-war groups. It can't be viewpoint discriminatory there. But when it comes to content discrimination that's viewpoint neutral, again, such as no electioneering, that's permissible simply because the government doesn't have to subsidize electioneering, doesn't have to subsidize particular subjects that it doesn't want to subsidize. So one could make a similar argument, that's pretty much the argument that the federal government is making in this case, that likewise the government doesn't have to support these kinds of marks that use other people's names without their permission, doesn't have to support those marks through the trademark registration system. So which position do you think is correct? Well, I think it's really hard to tell. I think there are plausible arguments for both sides, both based on the reasoning in the court's precedents and based on sort of First Amendment policy arguments. On the one hand, content discrimination is generally presumptively unconstitutional. For example, sign regulations. The government can't get away with saying, okay, we're going to ban political signs. Or for that matter, we're going to give a preference to political signs in regulations, say, of billboards. That may be a viewpoint neutral restriction, but it's a content-based one, and that's presumptively unconstitutional. On the other hand, when it comes to rules that don't forbid speech or even impose taxes on speech, but simply say, look, you know, we're going to provide benefits for certain kind of speech, whether the benefit is access to funds, let's say, or access to a tax exemption, access to trademark registration. There is a good deal of authority that says that those kinds of benefits programs can be allocated in content-based ways so long as they're viewpoint neutral. I should say, though, of course, the claimant, the person seeking to register the mark, and the federal circuit below rejected the benefits framing of this. They said, look, this isn't like a traditional benefit program like money being paid or access to government property. The uh, administration of of the trademark system shouldn't be viewed as that kind of government benefit. So you said this is hard to predict, but considering the Supreme Court's recent favoring First Amendment rights over federal trademark restrictions, is it taking the case to reverse the federal circuit? Well, uh, I think it's very hard to tell because the uh, federal government sought review of the case, and it uh, did so based on this federal statute being invalidated in part by the federal court below. That's usually a pretty strong reason for the Supreme Court to take the case, regardless of what it thinks of the result below. So I don't think we can infer much from the courts taking the case because, again, it's the norm when the federal judicial branch 
uh, the lower courts invalidate the work of the federal legislature and the executive branch, uh, the Supreme Court often takes the view, usually takes the view, well, it should be up to the Supreme Court to finally decide that rather than let a lower court do that. Thanks so much for joining us on the show again. That's Professor Eugene Volokh of UCLA Law School. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. The Supreme Court ruled against unions again, although it could have been worse for organized labor. The dispute was about the pressure that organized labor can exert during a strike in a case about unionized drivers who walked off the job with their trucks full of wet concrete. The decision united liberal and conservative justices in the latest loss for unions at the high court. It was an eight-to-one decision with the newest justice, Katanji Brown-Jackson, standing alone and writing her first dissent. The majority found that federal labor law doesn't prevent a ready-mixed concrete company from suing a union in state court for alleged intentional destruction of property during a strike. The opinion focused on the Teamsters affiliates' duty to take precautions to protect against damage to the employer's property, a theme during the oral arguments. Here's Chief Justice John Roberts. Well, but what you're saying is Garmin might not cover, may or may not cover, the fact that the milk is going to go sour or whatever it is. But we know that it doesn't, um, let me get these mixed up, but it does cover somebody who deliberately opens all the containers of milk and pours them down the drain. It just seems to me that intentional destruction of property is a much more serious concern than failure to take reasonable precautions. In her dissent, Justice Jackson highlighted that the NLRB's general counsel had issued a complaint alleging that the union's strike conduct is protected by federal labor law, a point she referred to repeatedly during the arguments. The regional director and the general counsel, they've looked at all the facts, and they file a complaint which indicates that someone has made an initial assessment along the same lines as arguable, that we have protected conduct here. Right. I don't understand why the easiest way for all of us to be looking at this is in this particular kind of scenario where we have a complaint, then the issue of arguable is satisfied, and we allow the board to continue to investigate, and it can reach the actual determination that you're talking about. Joining me is labor law expert Kate Andreas, a professor at Columbia Law School. Tell us broadly about the decision. Yeah, so this was an 8-1 opinion holding for the employer. The question was whether an employer can sue its employees or sue the union under state tort law for damages that the employer incurred as a result of a strike. And what happened here was that the workers were drivers. They drive concrete mixers, and they decided to go out on strike. And when the time came from the strike, some of the drivers were already out on the road They drove their trucks back to Glacier's headquarters and walked off the job. The company was upset because it was unable to deliver the concrete and some of it hardened and basically meant that the company lost all the concrete and put its trucks at risk as well. That's at least what the company alleged. 
And the company sued the union in state court for tortious destruction of its property. And the union said, hey, wait, you can't sue us because this is a strike and a strike is protected by the NLRA. And when conduct is protected or arguably protected by the NLRA, the National Labor Relations Law, state law is preempted. And so your state tort suit can't go ahead. This has to basically be resolved before the NLRB. The Washington Supreme Court agreed with the union, and then the Supreme Court reversed. Why did the Supreme Court reverse? What was the opinion focused on? The opinion basically said this conduct, the the particular conduct that these workers engaged in, was not protected by the NLRA, not even arguably protected by the NLRA. And because it wasn't even arguably protected by the NLRA, the suit could go ahead. The opinion is actually pretty narrowly written, and it's not holding that strikes are never protected by the NLRA or that state tort suits can always go ahead when there's damage resulting from a strike. Simply held that because under these facts, the conduct that the employer pled in the complaint hasn't been litigated, so we don't know if that's actually what happened, that the conduct that was in the employer's complaint doesn't amount to conduct that's even arguably protected by the statute, and therefore the state tort suit could go forward. How much of a blow is this decision to unions, or is it a blow at all? Is it confined to its facts here? Yeah. So, I mean, first of all, I should say that I think the dissent gets it right. It's a single author dissent by Justice Jackson. And she basically says, look, this conduct actually is arguably protected by the NLRA. And we know that because the NLRB's general counsel has actually issued a complaint in the case. So because this conduct is arguably protected, the state tort suit can't go ahead and the agency should be allowed to do its job. We don't want to have a situation where you have state courts acting and the agency acting at the same time and multiple conflicting rulings. And that's what the precedent has always been. So my view is that Justice Jackson's dissent is correct. That said, the majority opinion is pretty narrow because it's really fact dependent. It emphasizes on these particular facts that what the, again, as they are alleged by the employer, that the union here evinced an intent to take affirmative steps to do harm to the employer's property, and that that makes the conduct unprotected. So it's not like a normal strike that here, the according to the facts alleged by the company, the Teamsters took affirmative steps to endanger Glacier's property. They failed to take any reasonable precautions to protect the property. And that's what renders this conduct unprotected and therefore subject to state tort suit. So I don't think that this opinion in and of itself is a major blow to unions or to workers. However, the fact that um, the court didn't just apply longstanding precedent correctly, as I think Justice Jackson does, is worrisome. And it's sort of another step in a long series of cases where the court is hostile to unions and hostile to workers. And then the other notable thing is that there's a two concurrences joined uh, by three justices altogether, Justices Thomas, Alito, and Gorsuch. And they would have gone much further to change, to, to drastically change labor law and to make it much more possible for businesses to sue unions in state courts to really change preemption law. So the unions actually dodged a bullet then? I think that is the case in this, yes. So the Teamsters general president, Sean O'Brien, said the political hacks at the Supreme Court have again voted in favor of corporations over working people. 
When was the last time the Supreme Court ruled in favor of a union? That is a good question. I am not sure of the answer to that. It's been a while. Um, I can't think of a recent case. doesn't mean there hasn't been one, but it certainly hasn't been an important one. In contrast, they've taken a number of really anti-union steps in prior decisions. So ranging from the ruling just a couple of years ago, holding that it's a taking of employers' property to allow union organizers access to farms in California, that that constitutes a violation of the takings clause, to the Supreme Court's opinion in Janus, where the court held that workers who are covered by collective bargaining agreements, public sector workers who are covered by collective bargaining agreements, cannot be required to pay for the cost of bargaining and representation, even though they get the benefits of those contracts, that that violates the First Amendment in a major departure from precedent to the court's ruling in the Epic Systems case, where they said that workers can be forced to sign away their rights to proceed through class actions, either in arbitration or in litigation, that that doesn't violate the NLRA. So there's been a long series of anti-worker, anti-union opinions. This is another one. This one just isn't as dramatic or important in terms of its precedential value, but it certainly does indicate that there's more to come, at least from the most conservative justices. So you agree with Justice Jackson in her dissent when she said the ruling risks erosion of the right to strike? Yes. Well, I agree with Justice Jackson in a couple of respects. First, I think she's absolutely right that the precedent strongly required the opposite outcome, that it required a finding that the state tort suit was preempted. I also think she's right to emphasize the importance of the right to strike and the fact that when employees engage in a right to strike, something that's protected by the statute, the NLRA, it's protected under international law. When workers engage in strikes, there is often some damage to employer property, and that does not render the strike unprotected. So Justice Jackson wrote, workers are not indentured servants bound to continue laboring until any planned work stoppage would be as painless as possible for their master. She's emphasizing that there is a really important right to strike and that workers can engage in that right and that might harm employer property. And that is part of the process. And there are certainly indications in the majority's opinion that not all justices see it the same way. And so there's a threat in the opinion to further erode the right to strike. But in and of itself, the very fact-bound opinion is unlikely to have a lot of effect unless we see lower courts extend it to other situations. I don't know if it's an indication of how strongly Justice Jackson felt about this, but this is her first solo dissent, and it's the first solo dissent from a first-term justice since Clarence Thomas in 1991. Fun fact. Maybe it's that- an excellent dissent, very clearly and powerfully written, and that also makes a compelling case for why workers' rights really need to be better protected under our jurisprudence. This is just that the union can be sued. It has to go to trial yet. Right. So it's unclear what's going to happen next, both in terms of what happens with this particular case and then more generally with the law. So with this case, it's possible that the state court will put the tort suit on hold because after the state court issued its ruling, the NLRB's general counsel issued a complaint. So it's possible that the state court will say, you know what, we still think we should put this tort suit on hold until the NLRB's proceedings finish. Or it could let the case go forward, in which case there would then be fact-finding to determine whether, in fact, the strike activity 
is arguably protected or not. And if it is arguably protected or if it is protected, then the suit would not go forward. So at this point, one thing that makes this case somewhat odd is we're completely relying on the employer's description of the facts because that's the stage of the pleading, right, where all the facts have to be taken as true. So the employer says the union did X, Y, and Z. And for these purposes, we're all assuming that that's true. But once the case goes back on remand, either it will get put on hold while the NLRB's proceedings continue, or there will be factual development, and it will be determined whether or not the union actually is responsible for any of the harm. The bottom line is that this court is not friendly to workers and not friendly to unions, and that this case is another example of that. However, it is not a major blow, and workers should not take this opinion as a reason not to strike. They'll absolutely have the right to strike under the NLRA, and they should exercise that right when they need to. Thanks so much, Kate. That's Professor Kate Andreas of Columbia Law School. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news by subscribing to the Bloomberg Law Podcast or downloading the show at Bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.